Father, I need your grace to teach this well and to teach it graciously. And Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and to draw us to repentance so that we can know you more and follow you faithfully and live in obedience and love you well. And we thank you for your great love for us, this grace that you have given us in your son Jesus. And we thank you even for his hard words that cause us to do some introspection and to search our hearts to see if there be any wicked way in us. And Lord, I pray that you would convict us and draw us out of that and lead us to repentance and bring us into deeper transformation by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, A few weeks ago, I mentioned that my grandfather passed away, and this week, Leanne and I drove out to L.A. for his memorial service. It was a good trip. It was super quick. It was like 24 hours, and 14 of those were in the car. Uh, it would be tough for me to try and do justice to his memorial service. Like, I just, I just wish you could have been there. It was precious. Uh, but I bring it up because I just want you to hear for a second what an incredible man of God my grandfather was. He was a dentist. He was a father, he was a veteran, he was a grandpa, he was a loving husband, and he was a committed church member. But more importantly than all of that, he was a man of God who loved Jesus until the very, very end. And I think that's why I want to talk about him for a moment here, because the way that I kind of see things, it appears to me that there are so very few people who love Jesus until the very end. The world is full of decent people. The world is full of moral people, I think. I I might even go so far as to say that the world is mostly full of good people. But consider for a second the fact that there are almost 50,000 people who live here in Maricopa. A few thousand of those go to church, by my best estimates. Probably several hundred of those who go to church don't really know what the gospel means. They, They attend church. They know religion, but they don't necessarily know Jesus. And then you consider that of those who are left out of that few thousand initially, some of those will walk away between now and the end of their lives. They won't pursue Jesus to the end. And the picture that comes into focus is that running this race with perseverance to the end, crossing the finish line, loving, and Je- loving Jesus and following him until that final day, it is a feat that few people actually accomplish. And Jesus said that this was true. Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14. You probably have heard this. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And my point this morning is not to discourage you with this news, but to encourage you. You have a choice in this matter. My grandfather had a choice in this matter every day. Will you choose to love Jesus to the end, to live in obedience to him, to serve him and follow him? Or will you instead decide to travel down that wide and easy way that leads to destruction? And as we look at our passage in Luke 11, I want to just show you seven deadly sins of destruction. These aren't the Catholic seven deadly sins that maybe you grew up being familiar with. These are sins that I think tempt religious people, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the lawyers, and maybe even us as Christians. Seven sins that potentially could prohibit us from crossing that finish line, ending the race well. 
Before I get into this, I want to give you just a quick character profile for the, uh, the Pharisees and the lawyers. Uh, I've done this before, but since it's been a, a couple of months, who are the Pharisees and who are the lawyers? Well, in short, the Pharisees were the religious elite. They were incredibly moral, incredibly pious. They were careful to obey the entire Old Testament law and then some. They were also the political ruling class in Jerusalem in this day. And as such, it was their self-proclaimed job to enforce the moral religious rules of the day, the law. And so, think about this. Who brings the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 before Jesus? It's the Pharisees enforcing the law. They were almost like religious police living these exemplary lives of what it meant to follow the law while also going around making making sure that all of the Jews in general were living according to this self-imposed standard of conduct that was loosely tied to the Old Testament law. Now, the lawyers, on the other hand, they were not as concerned with enforcing the law. They were more concerned about understanding it, interpreting it, and safeguarding it. They were the experts of the law. I mean, you think about a lawyer. What is a lawyer today? An expert in the law, right? And such was the case with the scribes and the lawyers in the New Testament. They added layer after layer after layer to the law to make sure that people didn't break the law. So, for example, in the Old Testament, there are 613 Old Testament laws. But by the time the lawyers were done with the Old Testament law in the day of Jesus, they had added 6,000 additional requirements to the law, not laws that God actually gave, things that they piled on top of it to protect people from even getting close to potentially breaking the law, you see. This immense burden that God himself did not even heap upon his children Israel. And so two things are clear. First, the Pharisees and lawyers, they were fiercely committed to their religion. And second, they were incredibly self-righteous people, following the letter of the law far above and beyond what was actually required. And yet, and yet, for all of their religious piety, they were guilty of every single one of these seven deadly sins of self-destruction that I want to point out to you this morning. And in fact, Jesus warns us about these sins because he finds them in the religious leaders of his day, and they become this almost terrifying teaching lesson to those of us who come afterward as we read the Gospels. Okay, one final thing before we look at these, okay? I really want to encourage you this morning to humble your heart and to just do some honest introspection. I'm not necessarily going to give you some simple takeaway application point. Instead, I want you to just search your heart this morning as I'm talking and as we look at Scripture. The tendency, whenever we get honest and we talk about sin, the tendency is the heart, it hides and it redirects towards other things meaning that it's easy for us to see sin in other people or even just acknowledge that something is a sin, but when it comes close to home to our hearts, it's difficult to see that sin present in our own lives. And so I want to challenge you this morning to just ask yourself these kinds of questions. Am I guilty of any of these sins? Do I need to repent and implement some course corrections in my life before I end up like the scribes, the the lawyers, and the Pharisees, self-righteous, and heading towards destruction. All right, here we go. Luke 11, starting in verse 37. Deadly sin number one, I'm going to call it the sin of fraud. 
While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. This is the sin of fraud, making our lives appear to be something that they're not. Cleaning our behavior without first cleaning our hearts. From time to time, my children will drink milk and they'll put it in a, you know, a, a cute children's cup and they won't finish it all. And this time of year when it's crazy hot, it only takes a couple of hours on the counter for that milk to congeal into this putrid sludge. Whenever I find those cups on the counter or the table, I'm always afraid that one of my kids is going to come in and being thirsty, they're going to see the outside of the cup. It's very colorful and vibrant, and they're going to be thirsty, and they're going to pick that cup up, and they're going to take this big swig of this leftover milk in there. And just the thought of it is enough to sort of make me nauseous, right? You know. The cup on the counter is a fraud, It looks refreshing, it's bright, it's attractive to a child. It even looks clean from the outside. But on the inside, it is foul, it is disgusting. And for whatever reason, God has not given us the ability to peer into one another's hearts. It's probably a wonderful grace. All that we can see is the outside of the cup. And there are people who parade around and they act very good and moral, like good little Christians, but actually inside they are rancid and foul. They are dead, in fact. Not too long ago, I was in this situation where I was forced to listen to this man express to me how much he despised his neighbor. He was furious at this man. His neighbor had done something to his own private property, but because it was close to his fence, it made this other man angry. And as a result, this guy had essentially made it his life ambition in retirement to destroy his neighbor. And he had told the man as much. And then at one point in our conversation, this guy has the gall to tell me, I'm a born-again Christian. And to be fair, I could not see this man's heart, and so maybe that is, in fact, true. But in that moment, what I saw was a fraud. Full of wickedness, this man's heart was. Full of ambition to destroy his neighbor, rather than love him like Christ commands. And God cares deeply about the outside of our life. Don't get me wrong. He cares about our holiness. He cares about our behavior. But he cares far more about the condition of our heart from which that behavior proceeds. And when it comes to the sin of fraud, you can deceive the church. You can deceive me. You can deceive the people sitting next to you. But you cannot deceive the one who made the outside and the inside of the cup. And so in the end, the sin of fraud succeeds ultimately in just deceiving one person. And do you know who it is? It's you, of course. You end up believing that your putrid heart is good or clean or righteous when in fact it is dead. You have an external conformity to religiosity or morality with an internal godlessness. Which means that you, like the Pharisees, would be on the path towards self-destruction. And if you're searching your heart this morning and you believe that you might be guilty of the sin of fraud, then I encourage you, repent and receive God's grace. 
Repent before him now and repent before a gracious, loving brother or sister in Christ later and let them know so you can feel God's forgiveness and grace. Deadly sin number two, the sin of bribery. Verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The Old Testament law, it didn't require that you tithe every herb, only certain herbs. And so we see the Pharisees, they go above and beyond what God requires of them. And they thought that if, if I can overpay in this area here by tithing extra herbs, then God will be okay with me underpaying over here in this area when it comes to love and to justice. But that's not how it works. You can't buy God off. You can't bribe him to stay away from certain areas of your life. Don't think that you can give extra time or extra money or even read your Bible more or pray more so that God will then not be concerned with other areas of your life where sin is being indulged flagrantly. That's just not how this works. And this sin tends to whittle away at us in little ways. For the Pharisees, it was herbs. Probably doesn't make much sense to us. We're not tithing herbs. But today, somebody might say, they might say, well, I give my money to the church, so I don't need to give my time to serve. Or maybe conversely, the other way, I give my time to serve, so I don't need to give money to the church. Maybe the conservative Republican Christian might say, I support religious liberty in this country, and so I don't need to care about social justice issues. Or maybe the liberal Democrat Christian might say, I fight for racial and economic equality, and so I don't need to consider the plight of the unborn child. Do you see? Or maybe closer to home, I love the Christians at my church so deeply, and trust me, I sacrifice enough doing that. So I don't need to love my neighbors. And there are all kinds of ways in which we try and bargain with God to get out of doing the hard things that he requires from us. But ultimately it's sin and God does not bargain with us. And if we consistently choose behavior over time with our lives, this behavior that is bargaining, eventually what we're going to find is that we no longer value the things that God values and we are far from God. We no longer love what he loves and our heart no longer breaks for the injustice that breaks his heart. And our goal is to buy him off so that he'll go away and leave us alone. And unfortunately, what happens in time is he does just that. He rejects our pitiful offerings and he leaves us cruising down a wide and easy path that we've chosen for ourselves. And so if you're searching your heart this morning and you believe you're guilty of the sin of bribery, trying to buy God off in this way so that he won't touch this part of your life, then I encourage you to repent, receive his grace, and offer up your whole heart. Deadly sin number three, the sin of ego, verses 43 to 44. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. I just want to make it clear, Jesus is not referencing some vague superstition about graves here that people in our culture might feel. The Old Testament law indicates that a person can become ritually or ceremonially unclean by walking over a grave where there is a dead body buried. And so Jesus is saying that Pharisees, by enforcing their form of the law, 
are actually making people unclean without those people even knowing it. But the sin that we see here is the sin of ego, narcissism, pride, self-importance. This sin, it rejects the example of Jesus in which he lived a humble life, and it instead craves attention and honor. These are the me monsters that maybe you know, where everything always has to be about them. They even use their religious faith for personal accolades, personal praise. And the goal of the Christian life is not to climb the ladder of prestige. The goal of the Christian life is death to self for the good of others. And this is what Jesus passed on to those of us who follow him. We are to wait on the Lord until he lifts us up. And while we wait, strive for humility. And any other pathway to glory, it actually steals glory from God and it focuses it us on us, on man. And God, trust me, God is committed to lifting up the humble. And he is also committed to humbling the proud. And when we see glory and honor for ourselves, we dishonor God and we so sin against him when we do that. And I just want to remind you, I mean, if this is your temptation, I, I just want to remind you how much greater the glory will be when it is Jesus who lifts you up and glorifies you versus you who exalt yourself. And if you're searching your heart this morning and you believe you're guilty of this sin of ego, then again, I, I encourage you to repent, receive God's grace, humble yourself and let him lift you up. Now, after this third rebuke, I think there's sort of a, a moment of humor. At least I find it's humorous. Jesus turns to the lawyers for their turn. These are the people, remember, who added to the law to make it a crushing burden on people. And I love this picture of Jesus that we see here because it keeps us honest. There are some people who want to incorrectly portray Jesus as this man who was so full of love and grace that he was soft and he was accepting of everyone no matter their condition. And I want you to understand, Jesus is full of love and grace even more than you comprehend. And he does accept anyone, that is true. But his love and his grace never come at the cost of truth. He never sacrifices truth for love. He does not compromise, and remember, he does not bargain. And so the lawyer says, oh man, Jesus, when you slap these Pharisees around, man, that really, that hurts my heart too. And Jesus responds, I haven't even started with you guys yet. You ready for this? <laughs> Verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And Jesus said, woe to you lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Deadly sin number four, the sin of scrutiny. Here Jesus condemns the lawyers for evaluating the performance of others without first evaluating their own performance. How easy it is for us to see when someone else is not living up to our standards, and yet how hard it is to see when we don't even live up to our own standards. We scrutinize the performance of others. And we need to do that because if we love one another, then we will help one another see the flaws so we can correct those and make progress, right? That is a good thing. That leads us to greater godliness. 
But you can only scrutinize after you have first done scrutiny internally. I remember counseling this couple a long time ago, and it was obvious that the husband had these super high expectations for his wife. And I thought they were good. I thought they were fair expectations. But every time that I pleaded with him to see that he was falling short of his own expectations, that he was pressing upon her, he would not hear it. And eventually it became so poignant that he, he, he left and we ceased having these counseling sessions. We must scrutinize one another to help one another along. If we truly love one another, then we will warn each other if we are playing too close to the cliff edge. If someone is flirting with sin and moving towards this wide and easy path that leads to death, we need to call out a warning. But we can only effectively do that when we're not dancing ourselves on the edge of the cliff. So let us scrutinize, but let us begin with our own hearts, weeding sin out before we go and heap our expectations on others, lest we end up like the scribes, forcing burdens upon people that we ourselves can't bear. And if you're searching your heart this morning and you believe that you're guilty of this sin of scrutiny towards others without scrutiny towards yourself, then I encourage you again, repent. Receive God's grace. Let him search your heart and reveal these things so that you can press on towards greater godliness. Deadly sin number five, the sin of soft rejection. This is the point where it's warm in the room and I've been talking for 20 minutes and your attention is waning, but I want you to understand that I think this is the one that the American church is often most guilty of. The sin of soft rejection. Let me read verses 47 to 51. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will, it will be required of this generation. I would be willing to bet that none of us in this room would outright reject the word of God. Typically, that's people who don't go to church on Sunday morning, right? And yet, often, Christians are guilty of this sin of soft rejection. We gloss over the parts of the Bible that we don't really like. We find ways to work around the doctrines that we disagree with. We surround ourselves with like-minded people who support our worldview We gladly conform certain areas of our life to God while refusing to conform others to his word. And in the text, we see that even while the forefathers of the lawyers appeared to follow the word of God, they appeared to follow the law. They refused to hear God speak when he sent his prophets. They killed them and they rejected God's word through the prophets. Now, what's striking here is that the lawyers that Jesus is talking to, they didn't play any part in this outright rejection. They weren't even alive when it took place. And yet Jesus judges them so harshly for their little game of picking and choosing which parts of God's word are important. 
And in a sense, they're guilty of a worse sin than their fathers because they pretend to honor these prophets who died, and yet they still reject their words. It's nothing more than a show. By building a tomb, it looks as if these men are honoring these prophets of old whom their fathers killed. But in fact, they're merely constructing monuments over their graves so that these men of God will stay dead and silent. And it's a meaningless memorial to a word that they refuse to hear. If they truly accepted the prophets, they wouldn't build tombs. They would change the way that they lived. But they wouldn't do that. So they're guilty of the sin of soft rejection, a sin that looks like acceptance, but it's nothing more than an elaborate game of rejection. And I think we see this lots of different ways in Christians today, a failure to truly live our lives seeking to be submitted to the authority of the Bible for our lives. I mean, one of just the most obvious, most glaring examples has to be this revolution of sexual ethics within the church that has followed pace with the revolution of sexual ethics of our immoral pagan culture. Lots of people who claim to be Christians have rejected the clear teaching of Scripture in order to justify all kinds of sexual sin. And people, I mean, just it is just the nature of our hearts to do what we want to do in rebellion against God. And so there are Christians who want this half in, half out, softly rejecting some of the Word of God while claiming to believe others. Like building the tombs of the prophets who were murdered, these people, they pretend to honor God in his word, and yet they pick and choose parts to live by. And Jesus judges the lawyers harshly for this, because here's why. Because by rejecting even a tiny portion of the word of God, you reject the entire word of God. And if you're searching your heart this morning and you believe you're guilty of the sin of soft rejection like, like I am from time to time, then I encourage you to repent and receive God's grace. Trust his word. Live in submission to it. Deadly sin number six, the sin of interference. This is a sin that I think I need to more warn you about, not necessarily one that I want to call you to repent from. Verse 52, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. The key of knowledge is the Word of God. You can know all kinds of things from books and history and science and education, but you don't know anything if you don't know God's Word. That is to say, if you know God's Word, then you, know, then you have everything that you need to know for eternal life. But if you don't know God's Word, then all of your knowledge is ultimately gained for nothing in the end. And here Jesus condemns the religious leaders because they've made it impossible for people to know God's word. They've assumed this authority that God has not given them to mediate God's word to the people. And some religious leaders, I think, are still guilty of this today. And that's why, that's why here on Sundays, fairly frequently, I think, I encourage you to read your Bibles, to fact check me on what it is that I'm saying because if our church ever gets to the point where as church members you begin to think that the only way that you can understand God's word is if I explain it to you, then we have sailed away from 
the course that God has set for his church, and we are guilty as a church of taking away the key of knowledge from those who believe. And it is my responsibility to point you to the Bible and anything other than that, and I would be guilty of the sin of interference. It's your responsibility to know what the Bible says, not what Grady says about the Bible. And it's never necessary for you to go through me to understand what the Bible says. It is the Holy Spirit that teaches us and opens our eyes to the truth. And you have the word of God yourselves so that if I go astray, you don't have to follow me down that wide and easy path. And the power of God's word, it's available to every believer, not just the church leaders and teachers. Now, as Jesus says this, we see the dangerous outcome of these sins in response by the Pharisees and the lawyers. As Jesus rebukes these people for their sin, his rebuke should have led them to repentance. That's the purpose of rebuke. But these sins have made the Pharisees and the lawyers so cold to God that instead of repenting, they conspire towards even greater evil and sin. Look at verse 53. As Jesus went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Not to this extreme, but I've seen this behavior before. Maybe you have as well. We all have the responsibility to call one another to repentance because we love one another, because that's what the body of Christ does. And on several occasions, I have seen in that process people respond like the Pharisees and the scribes when the church attempts to do its duty to call them to repentance. Rather than repent and experience the joy of God's forgiveness and grace and restoration in community, and, and this, uh, this goal to step further into progress in godliness, into the grace of God. People who end up being rebuked, who are offered the help of the church through that process, what do they do? They end up conspiring against the church. Have you seen this? They write emails, they spread rumors, they rally rebels. Not to kill, thank God, but to kill the work that Christ is doing in his bride. And so here we find deadly sin number seven, the sin of self-preservation. The sin of self-preservation. All of these littler sins, they lead down this path to a much greater sin in the end. And this is the sin of outright rejection of Christ and his message to repent and believe. Jesus asks us to follow him, to die to ourselves. But that process, as you know, it takes repentance, humility, brokenness, and suffering. It takes the death of our sinful nature and our sinful desires. And rather than follow Jesus down the road to the cross, most people choose instead to try and find their own way. And instead of letting Jesus save them, they try to save their, themselves. And this is the sin of self-preservation. And sadly, it never works. And instead of self-preservation, rejection of Jesus leads to self-destruction. The best that man can do alone is a frail and pathetic attempt at external godliness. And if you're searching your heart this morning and you believe you're guilty of this sin of self-preservation, trying to save your life apart from Christ through frantic effort, I encourage you, repent, receive God's grace, know the freedom of Jesus who preserves our life. Now listen, I just want to close with this. 
I've told you about seven deadly sins to avoid, but you can't really avoid sin. Not forever, anyway. Have you tried that? What you really need is a hero who will destroy sin. If we go back to thinking about my grandpa, who was faithful, who finished the race, he didn't finish the race in his own power. He didn't finish the race by merely avoiding sin for 94 years, as important as it is to do that. My grandpa was faithful because he trusted in the faithfulness of Jesus. He finished the race because Jesus had already completed it for him and marked out a path for him to follow, which my grandpa did. And what I mean is that the goal of the Christian life, it's not to avoid sin. I mean, if you leave here this morning and you tack these on your fridge and you're like, i got to avoid these things, then I think you've misunderstood. The goal of the Christian life is to hide under the cover of Christ, the one who destroyed sin. And only he can deliver us from the evil of sin. Only he can keep us from the self-destruction of the wide and easy path. And I just want to read these words from Psalm 91 that I think sum it up well. I think I have a slide for them so you can follow along. It says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near to your tent. And then notice the quote marks. It's God who speaks next. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Let me pray. Oh, Father, would you keep us from these deadly sins of self-destruction? Pride, a haughty heart, rejecting your word, either outright or in soft ways. Lord, would you keep us from evaluating the progress of others when we haven't first evaluated our own progress? And Father, would you help us to hide in your shadow? Would you allow us to trust in your goodness and your ability to lead us faithfully home in the end? Would you help us to be faithful and follow Jesus who was faithful? Father, we thank you that you are a God who promises that if we hold fast to you in love, that you will deliver us. And we worship you for that now. Amen.